I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionised over 20 million bedtimes, with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cosy sleep meditations, Every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Hi, I'm Ethan Nadelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs. But any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drug. Hello, psychoactive listeners. You know, one of the things I love about doing this podcast is that I really get to pick any guest I want who I think is really smart and has interesting things to say. And you may have listened to the episode with Nora Volkow, the longtime head of National Institute on Drug Abuse, or the ones with Dan Cicerone, the UCSF professor, expert on overdose, or Andy Weil. Um, and this one is somebody who ranks at the level of brilliance of any of those previous guests, but whose life has been quite a bit different. His name is Leonard Picard, and Leonard Picard is known, if you look him up on Wikipedia or anywhere else, for being allegedly, I should say, perhaps the world's greatest producer of LSD in the 20th century. 
And now Leonard is not just that, of course. I mean, he's a brilliant chemist, helps explain why he allegedly did what he did. But he's also somebody who landed up with a master's degree in the Kennedy School, did really interesting drug research. He's also somebody who was sentenced um, in the early 2000s to two life sentences in a federal prison and spent something like two decades behind bars in a maximum security prison, and then just got out at the very beginning of this year, 2021, I think in good part uh, because of COVID and a sort of compassionate release, although I think there was also a campaign uh, to try to get him released early as well. And he remains under supervised release, which um, also will inhibit a bit what he can say about his life and his activities. So I've asked Leonard in talking about this, I'm going to be blunt and asking him every question. He's going to do his best to um, answer as frankly as he can. But where he feel that there might be some risk, he might answer a little more in the abstract. Um, and so you, the audience, should take his comments as maybe or maybe not reflecting his actual real life world experience. Now, Leonard, hello. Thank you so much for joining me on Psychoactive. Well, hello, Ethan. Uh, lovely to see you again. You know, a year ago, we couldn't have this conversation, so it's uh, particularly meaningful to be able to speak with you after so many years. I know. I've been wondering about my ability to try to get other people for, who actually are currently behind bars to be on a podcast, but I'm imagining most prison systems in America, maybe other countries, wouldn't allow that. Now, you know, you and I, we first crossed paths very briefly in the mid-90s, I think it was, at some psychedelics conference in the Bay Area, and then had no contact thereafter for, you know, really since you got out. And then one of my fellow producers said, hey, how about this fellow Leonard Picard? And so you and I have now had a chance to spend some time together, both in New York and in Boulder, Colorado. You've introduced me to some of your um, friends and contacts in the psychedelics uh, investment space. But I wanted to start off really by um, just asking you this. When we talk about your reputation as being the biggest or one of the biggest uh, producers of LSD in global history, can you say, well, yep, that's true? Or are you in a position where it's really hard to you know, own that at this point or whether maybe it's actually factually not true? My goodness. Um, first of all, I should preface this uh, for your audience that Ethan and I had a quite a rollicking conversation until midnight uh, some weeks ago in Boulder, Colorado, in which we went over uh, quite a few things that perhaps can't be talked about on this podcast. Um, but uh, I do remain under federal supervision, and uh, I must maintain my position uh, under oath at federal trial that the allegations are, are merely government uh, conjecture. Okay, fair enough, Leonard. So let me just go back to your early days. I mean, as people who um, are allegedly involved in illicit drug production and distribution are involved, yours is a really kind of specialized area in that you were a chemist by many accounts, a brilliant chemist, and became, uh, you know, involved in this, uh, you know, in making LSD, a drug which is, it's not cocaine, it's not heroin or methamphetamine. I mean, it sort of is in a different category in a way. And I just wanted to ask you, if you go back to your early years, I mean, you grew up in a family, I'm not sure which city it was, but with a father who was a lawyer and a mother working for the U.S. Center of Disease Control. You got a scholarship to Princeton. But at some point in your late teens, early 20s, 
you must have got an interest both in chemistry and in psychedelic substances. Well, yes, I can speak to that a little, uh, Ethan. Uh, my interest uh, goes back to perhaps 1963, when the only marijuana available uh, was that from uh, jazz bands in New York City. The young people didn't have access. Uh, then things slowly changed, and one began to see cannabis uh, more widely available. At that point, uh, I left Princeton in order to join what then was a youth revolution spanning the globe. Uh, you recall the uh, the song, uh, if you're going to San Francisco, wear flowers in your hair. And so I was part of that entire youth movement uh, moving west, but also in New York City, London, Rome, throughout the world. Uh, youth were experiencing a, an unusual, a very specialized, a very potent uh, a neurochemical and having subjective experiences that were profound and unanticipated, often very spiritual or religious. So I was part of that early movement, yes. So 1963, you're 18 then. Timothy Leary is kind of emerging on the scene. There's already been quite substantial LSD research. And it's not just LSD, right? There's also mescaline out there and mushrooms and things like that. But uh, does LSD play a special role in, when you're talking about this set of chemicals from right at the beginning? Or early on, was mescaline as of great interest to you as LSD? Oh, not not at all. Of course, mescaline reared its head among the artists of uh, Paris in the 20s and 30s, Antoinette Artaud, for example, all through Huxley's days. But uh, I, of course, had no access to it. Pure mescaline is uh, exceptionally rare. And of course, the dosage is several hundred milligrams. So that the first large-scale deployment of a specialized psychoactive such as LSD had to be simply that compound which is potent at 100 micrograms, um, 10 million doses a kilogram. Mm -hmm. So it took this incredibly potent substance uh, to be manufactured by small cadres of underground chemists to deploy 10 million doses uh, throughout initially Northern California and across the United States. And thus began the revolution of the 60s, 66, 67, the advent of the Beatles, the shift in music, uh, no one had ever heard uh, songs uh, such as I Am the Walrus. Uh, it was <laughs> all Detroit uh, bebop. So music changed, art changed. Uh, spontaneous social gatherings occurred, thousands of people coming together peacefully with no police around, no bands, simply sharing sunlight and each other on a warm afternoon. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, LSD, right? I mean, it's created somewhat by accident by a chemist, Albert Hoffman, working for a pharmaceutical firm in Switzerland in 1943. And it's legally available until some point in the mid-60s or so. So were people largely obtaining it through legal or diverted legal sources up until that point? Well, it was made illegal in 66. And before then, one could actually buy small quantities from some of the manufacturers in Europe, uh, most prominent among them Sandoz uh, Laboratories in Basel, which is where uh, Albert Professor Hoffman uh, did his inventions. Uh, so occasionally, magic grams, as they were called, would appear in the United States. And that's 10 to 20,000 doses in one gram. Mm -hmm. And these were very carefully shared among young end psychoanalysts and uh, saxophone players and <laughs> abstract impressionists and theologians and 
quite a wide spectrum of humanity initially. Well, there was a, a particularly fascinating character, I think, back in the late 50s, early 60s, named Al Hubbard. Right, a, a businessman who got his hand on some thousands or tens of thousands of doses and supposedly made it his mission in life to go around dosing prominent individuals, five or 6,000 people, business leaders, famous actors, uh, intellectuals. Did you ever cross paths with him in those days? Or did you have any special insights into this pioneering sort of Johnny Appleseed of LSD? Uh, I'm aware of Hubbard, but I did not cross paths with him. He... Uh was quite a remarkable character and uh, would often wear a boy scout suit and carry a faux handgun, sort of quasi-militaristic uh, spoof on you know, oppressive control regimes. He uh, was a trickster, uh, had a great deal of fun. But I did become well acquainted with a very beloved um, psychiatrist named John Beresford, who passed away about 2015. John is famous for bringing in the magic gram into the United States and um, turning on, or rather exposing, if you will, to the subjective effects of LSD, a stunning array of uh, scientists and physicians and uh, seekers of every kind. Uh-huh. Well, you and I also had a friend come in, uh, Alexander, a.k.a. Sasha Shulgin, who, you know, some would describe as one of the most brilliant chemists ever to devise psychedelic-oriented substances in his backyard lab, where both you and I were visitors in Lafayette, California, um, back when he was still alive. Now, he's most known for discovering or rediscovering MDMA, aka ecstasy, and its properties, but also inventing 2CB and writing some remarkable books with his wife, Anne Shulgin, about this. When do you meet Sasha Shulgin, and how does he land up becoming, I guess, something of a mentor in your life? Oh, my goodness. Sasha is a truly beloved figure, and um, uh, frankly, I loved him. I first became of his work uh, at 21. I'm standing in Malincrot, the old Malincrot Laboratories uh, at Harvard, and looking through a, uh, a bound volume of the Journal of Organic Chemistry and looking at a set of compounds called phenethylamines, which were psychoactive and there was this most unusual paper uh, describing uh, the production of phenethylamines, written by an author whose um, affiliation was not Dow Chemical or this or that university, but simply 1483 Shulgin Road, Lafayette, California. <laughs> I went, Mike, what is this? <laughs> and it described the first human effects. It was unusual that uh, a prestigious uh, journal uh, such as uh, Organic Chemistry would publish um, human work, but Sasha did it. That was, oh goodness, um, 66 or so. And I followed every paper that uh, Sasha wrote with his um, co-worker Peyton Jacobs III uh, for 20 years, but of course never met the man. I was too awed by his capability and, and stature. And uh, at that point, uh, I was uh, at Stanford and had a problem involving uh, the synthesis of mescaline that was intractable. I was looking at this particular process and uh, there was just no way around a particular synthetic uh, hurdle. And I thought Sasha would be the only person to whom one might dare approach and ask about this. So I braved writing a letter to 1483 Shogun Road <laughs> in Lafayette. <laughs> and Rather quickly came back an invitation, personal invitation signed by Sasha to visit his class uh, at that time at, in toxicology at uh, San Francisco State, although he also taught at Berkeley. 
Thus I appeared, and there was Sasha, six five of uh, extraordinarily white, thick mane of hair, with the devoted Anne always in attendance, and their daughter Wendy with her mane of golden hair. And there was Sasha in front of the class, with a great smile, scribbling these exotic structures on the chalkboard of uh, most elegant molecules. And he had a certain glee about him, as though he was respectful of these creations that he had made and understood uh, how they reached uh, rather deeply into people's hearts and minds and somehow conveyed that to all of us. I, I can recall going through that entire semester with a, a smile. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I just want to say to our listeners, it's important for me, when I mention the name of Sasha Shulgin in this conversation with Leonard, or as I have in conversations with other guests, it's because I do think it's important to appreciate who some of the founders um, in drug research and drug policy were. And Sasha Shulgin really was this sort of godfather of psychedelics research. And in some respects, his wife, Anne, was the godmother because she was his co-writer on so much of what he did. I'm just trying to get a sense of your life then, right? So you're born in 45, 63 or 18. You spend a little time at Princeton. You start hanging out in Greenwich Village, the jazz scene, the marijuana scene. You head out west, San Francisco, and everything's opening up there. There's all this leaning psychedelics figures. There's Ken Kesey. And uh, so in that period, in your 20s, you know, you don't end up getting arrested for anything until you're in your 30s or 40s or something like that. Are you basically just hanging out? Are you a research assistant? Are you working for pharmaceutical firms? Are you, to the extent you can say, engaged in beginning to produce some of these things, either legally as part of projects or not so legally? What can you tell us about your 20s in the West Coast and wherever else? Well, you're very kind to ask me, uh, Ethan, you know, but I I can't say that I'm part of a secret society or Mm -hmm. that anyone else was. But I think if one were part of a secret society, and in those days one sort of had to be to avoid being persecuted, then it would be most honorable to maintain that secrecy, mm-hmm. even when there was no longer any need for it. Um, I lived in the mountains, the far mountains, the great forest, the snowfields. I lived in the far deserts. You could hear the coyotes bark and the full moon upon the desert. I lived near the oceans the ceaseless waves, and I studied. I haunted the libraries of Berkeley and Stanford and San Francisco State, San Jose State, as much uh, academia as I could gather, looking at structures of molecules, studying what uh, today is psychedelic space, but in those years was almost a forbidden topic. One did not mention these drugs at uh, risk of one's career, as you well recall. Mm-hmm. So I became uh, well-studied in all aspects of uh, the chemistry and pharmacology of, of these compounds, and of course, uh, naturally, broader aspects of pharmacology, pharmacokinetics, toxicology. Um, I gathered several hundred undergraduate credits from multiple institutions. And in between these forays into reading and thought and practice, um, I lived in the uh, most remote areas imaginable. 
I see. So even in talking about what you personally were doing, independent of what other people in the, uh, what's the phrase, the brotherhood of underground chemists um, were engaged in. Uh, so I, I, I can understand that and defer to your need to be cautious about that. Let me take the conversation this way. What would have been involved in setting up an LSD lab? You know, what are the risks, the challenges? What's surprisingly easy? What's surprisingly difficult? Well, that's, a, of course, a, a very uh, a deep question. You're asking me about uh, what is required to uh, establish a uh, clandestine laboratory. And, of course, I can only speak to that, given my present uh, situation, uh, by projecting it upon third parties, people that I have interviewed, underground chemists that I've interviewed, and I cannot, of course, speak to it personally. But uh, I can address the topic, given those caveats. To establish an underground laboratory, and I wouldn't do this at home, kids, <laughs> requires, uh, first of all, the rather dedicated faith of a small uh, group of people who have, in effect, uh, given their lives over to uh, this particular art. Because even through the present day, with billion-dollar corporations proliferating, we must uh, recall that all these materials uh, are still Schedule One. No known medical use for the most severe penalties for an underground laboratory, easily a mandatory life without possibility of parole. So I certainly will not suggest anyone entertain the prospect of doing so. However, those that braved this assembly first collected a small handful of the faithful and experienced that had spent their entire lives in the field and then accumulating the appropriate uh, glassware and technical instruments, which could be quite extensive and would fill a room, four walls of a 120-square-foot room uh, to the ceiling, or several rooms, uh, appropriate liquids, reagents, exotic specialized glassware, some of it handmade by pharmaceutical glass firms, a very elegant and sensitive uh, process, not difficult, more difficult than methamphetamine, but the difficulty arises not so much in uh, the conversion of, say, uh, lysergic acid to LSD, but in scaling up from a few milligrams to hundreds of grams or kilograms, um, a world quantity, if you will, 10 million doses, 20 million doses. That requires highly specialized uh, equipment and practices. And some of those practices are not simply technical. One may find oneself in a moon suit with uh, protective uh, face shields and respirators and gloves made of material which won't permit uh, dissolution by any solvent. One may find oneself in this regalia uh, 100 miles from the nearest uh, paved road with pumps whirring and at three in the morning bathed in red light to prevent any breaking of the molecule by normal light. Syntheses conducted under noble gases such as argon, uh, surrounded by uh, things which remind the manufacturer of the responsibility that the manufacturer has for the effect of this substance in potentially millions of minds. And that is not something that's simply a nine-to-five job and one forgets about and goes home. That's a responsibility which consumes every moment of one's day, weeks, months, years, one's life. Uh, within the setting, there may be votives, 
depending upon one's religious tradition. Candles, incense, fires burning, music playing ranging from uh, Gregorian chant to Hildegard von Bingen to Peruvian music to chants by Maria Sabina, the Mazatec uh, Curandera in Oaxaca. And within this great assembly of light and sound and music, uh, a number of the principal chemists uh, in the past, uh, Owsley, Nick Sand of the Brotherhood, Tim Scully, who is still with us, would at the moment of conversion from lysergic acid LSD, the moment when suddenly 10 million hits becomes psychoactive, that very five minutes, they inevitably, and Nick mentioned this publicly, they inevitably would pray in their own tradition. Nick would pray standing, others would kneel, place their hand upon the reaction kettle, and ask that this substance be a true medicine in the hearts and minds of those that used it. It would be a medicine to heal, to alleviate suffering throughout the world, to act as a kind of grace upon us. You know, Leonard, when I hear you describe this, part of what it sounds like is almost a hybrid of, on the one hand, I love the series Breaking Bad, right, about the methamphetamine manufacturer and, and who does the highest quality methamphetamine and, and who has his great underground lab in the end and all of this stuff, and they have to wear suits in the way that you describe and a high level of meticulousness and pride in their expertise. Yet on the other hand, there's this element in what you describe that resembles the um, preparation of psychedelic and psychoactive substances by shamans in traditional society. It, would it be fair? Is that an accurate thing to describe as, in some sense, that hybrid? Well, I have to challenge the comparison with Breaking Bad. You know, methamphetamine is um, a malaise upon uh, humanity. I've lost count of the number of individuals I've seen come into federal holding facilities emaciated and picking at their skin from weeks and months of intravenous methamphetamine. So it carries a kind of, if you will, uh, evil karma. Yeah, no, I understand that. I think uh, there's also the difference between methamphetamine that's being used in a medicinal frame and these others. But I take your point about that. Leaving aside what you regard as the immorality, um, and that many people regard as the immorality of producing methamphetamine for the illicit market, is it fair to say that there's some element of a hybrid between those two things, the modern-day lab and the uh, spiritual tradition of the you know, indigenous healers who are producing these substances? Absolutely. I, uh, you know, I'm sure Walter White never prayed that his product uh, act as a, a grace mm -hmm. upon the users. At the same time, uh, there is a shamanic aspect, I suppose. Um, underground chemists, of course, recognize a, a great responsibility that the material be pure and uh, used appropriately and conveyed appropriately. Uh, I think that uh, that may be best summed up in a, a statement that I think Tim Scully, who is Nick Sands' partner, uh, made uh, not long ago and is agreed upon by a number of an underground manufacturers that the effect of the substance may reflect in some small way the intent of the chemist. What the chemist has in their heart may reflect in, in the heart of the user. And so it's imperative that one uh, ascribe to a certain purity and a certain compassion. We'll be talking more after we hear this ad. 
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Callie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiments and Billy made raisins dance. so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me! <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to catch you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on StoryButton, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. The names you mentioned before, I mean, Owsley, there are books now written about him, and I think people sometimes refer to a Owsley LSD that they found in a draw somewhere, you know, its particular qualities. I think I remember watching a documentary about Nick Sands uh, of late. I hadn't known about Tim Scully till I was researching for doing this episode with you, um, and I don't know how accurate these books and documentaries are. Could you just Give us a little more of a sketch about the th each of the three of them. Um, what was special about each one of them and that broader brotherhood of which they were a part? Uh, yes, I can speak a little bit to each. Um, Owsley, fondly known as Bear in the Grateful Dead touring community, 
hence the Dancing Bears on Grateful Dead logos, was responsible for the first uh, major distribution or drop of LSD in the 60s. Perhaps one million doses distributed as uh, uh, double dome uh, white lightnings or <laughs> press tablets with Batman on it. The first million doses. He, did, he made about 500 grams over his life, a million doses, uh, as he self-reported. Bear was also created the wall of sound for the Grateful Dead shows and their enormous number of subterranean tapes which have just surfaced of Bear's recordings of early dead. Uh, he died in Australia uh, about 2015. Nick Sand, <laughs> quite a flamboyant and wonderful individual, was the subject of a recent film, The Sunshine Makers, uh, strongly recommended uh, to get a uh, feeling for Nick. Uh, Nick and Tim uh, were arrested for making uh, about 10 million doses. I attended the trial, I think in 73, and listened to Tim testify. And uh, shortly thereafter, Tim went to prison for two years. And Nicky uh, absconded to Pune, India, where he continued his manufacturing and uh, became quite a underground figure. Extraordinary individual and very much outspoken and out front and would not limit his, uh, his views on, on matters. Nicky, truly seminal figure. And they did uh, two kilograms, about 10 million doses. Uh, Nicky, over his lifetime, produced uh, 13 kilograms, about 130 million doses. Is there anyone else we left out? Well, those are the primary figures. Um, there are a number of individuals who manufactured a kilo or two. Mm -hmm. um, Todd Svensson in Boston, uh, those that I won't name because they were never arrested. Mm -hmm. The world of uh, clandestine LSD manufacture is um, small, mm -hmm. perhaps a handful of individuals, five or 10 individuals worldwide. It's been that way for 50 years, generally centered in San Francisco, but labs can just as easily be in Belgium or Italy. But if there were key people in Europe, they never got arrested. There have been quite a number of people that have never been arrested. Uh, one of the more interesting figures just passed away, that would be Dennis Kelly, uh, who did two years uh, <laughs> for a very large lab. Uh, production was called Clearlight. Uh, this was in the mid-70s. They were producing in Burnt Ridge, Oregon, a form of LSD known as a window pane because they were little squares of translucent gelatin, a very famous batch. Um, Dennis, again, produced about two to three kilograms. But <laughs> after his two years of incarceration, uh, Dennis um, entered the Zen, Soto Zen community and uh, became a Zen priest. And for the next 50 years, was known as Kenpo, and developed quite a following. Uh, his, um, he has a beautiful monastery, Dai Bosatsu Monastery in Mount Trimper, New York, is uh, Dennis's uh, creation. Uh, he just passed away a few months ago and uh, left an autobiography uh, maybe of interest to your listeners. Uh -huh. And Leonard, the Buddhist Zen tradition was something that you embraced uh, periodically or maybe throughout your life, huh? Well, uh, as a young person, I looked fondly down at Tassajara and the Tassajara bread book, which was all the rage during the hippie years, but uh, something sort of called to me about them, but I couldn't quite bring myself to stop what I was doing and go don robes and face the wall for weeks. <laughs> that seemed rather esoteric. But after uh, my first release from five years in prison, 
where I was exposed to um, a, a Chinese priest that came in from uh, the uh, Chinese monastery in L.A., I uh, went directly to uh, Soto Zen, the oldest uh, Soto Zen monastery in, in North America, and knocked on the door and asked uh, admission and was taken in and remained there for two years in a very rigorous uh, practice, uh, up at three in the morning, uh, morning sittings at four in the morning, uh, sweeping the sidewalks at five in the morning, <laughs> uh, robed. Lots of uh, chanting and very formal, refined uh, practices in the Japanese tradition. Very beautiful and gentle. Uh, people would bow to you in the hallway, which was quite a change of pace from stabbings in prison. So I became quite fond of the monastic setting and left only when uh, I received a letter of acceptance from Harvard. Mm -hmm. And at that point, uh, simply had to go. So, Leonard, now that one, I'll say, has a lab set up to produce at large volume, how long does it take to produce how big a batch? And is this something that you would do for some weeks at a time and then just take off a long time? Or was this an ongoing process that could go on for months and months and months? Well, the government's um, primary witness stated that um, the lab, I, he alleged, uh, I was responsible for uh, produced about a kilogram a month uh, for 20 years. That would be 250 kilograms. But of course, that to me is uh, quite fanciful. Uh, we'll let the listener decide on that. Um, in terms of the process itself, the process would depend upon at what stage in history that you're simply doing the synthesis. Nikki and Tim were young men, late 20s, early 30s. Uh, they were using an, an antique uh, cookbook method called Garbrick, which is quite toxic, involving sulfur dioxide uh, patented process. Um, I'm not quite sure the process uh, I also used, but probably something quite similar to it, or another patented public process, which is relatively low yield or produces a number of byproducts. But as the science evolved over the next 30 and 40 years. By the time we get to 2000, processes existed if one were a devotee of the literature and really thought about these things. Processes existed which would produce um, in a non-flammable way, uh, at room temperature, uh, large quantities of immensely pure LSD. These were never published in the sense that it might destabilize the world market or make entry into manufacture too simple. People thought it was probably best that um, there be some scientific hurdle that would prevent those that were less dedicated from entering uh, the field. So that um, uh, simple cookbook methods for these very advanced, uh, high-yield methods were uh, never published. I see. Was anybody you know of ever harmed uh, in the process of producing LSD? Uh, not that I know of. Mm -hmm. What you're describing, you know, suggests, I mean, it's like when I, when I was, you know, thinking about your ostensibly getting into this line of work and what would motivate you, I, you wonder how the combination of, on the one hand, just the challenge of it all, uh, the natural aptitude and curiosity about chemistry the appreciation for LSD and some of these other psychedelic substances having special properties for humankind, 
Um, but there was also the element that, you know, all of the people, or I don't know all, but most were allegedly selling these things and earning sometimes some fairly substantial amounts of money. But many of the key players were also apparently using their money in sometimes more in philanthropic ways as opposed to buying fancy houses or boats or, you know, having, you know, uh, this sort of lifestyle. So I'm curious, how, is it that mixture of variables in all of this? Uh, is it one factor that stands out more than others? You know, I realize you can't fully reflect on your own perspectives on this, but speaking a little more in the abstract or among members of the Brotherhood of Underground Chemists? Well, I can go back to, uh, I think, what Nick said uh, before his death, that he felt it was a calling that one is called upon, if you will, uh, in Nick's case by some higher power, to uh, do this sort of thing. Of course, one easily sacrifices one's life, at least in the past, not so much in the future. I mean, we're going to see corporations uh, manufacturing LSE as they are now uh, with government licensing. And that brings up an interesting point, which goes back to your early question about shamanic uh, manufacture. In the future, um, the licit medicalization and use of psychedelics, the sources will not be by someone who searches their soul and prays over a pure compound. It will be done by a technician, perhaps in uh, China, who simply goes home at five o'clock. And the question is, um, will this affect the outcome in the hearts and minds of the users? Well, I mean, one could engage in controlled double-line studies on this down the road, right? <laughs> well, or people could do their own at-home controlled <laughs> uh, blind study and, you know, randomly see and see, you know, record those experiences. But what do you think? Of course, we're speculating here, Ethan. Uh, you know, sci scientifically, the idea of an individual influencing the outcome of a drug in a third party is uh, not uh, tenable. Mm -hmm. It's uh, merely myth. But it's an entertaining myth, and it may keep certain manufacturers on their toes if they think they have to harbor a pure heart. You know, it relates to another issue there, right? I mean, there's a conversation that I've had, I think, in some of the other interviews, but about the difference between the synthesized chemical, the mescaline on the one hand, and the peyote or San Pedro from which, you know, it can be derived, or with psilocybin and mushrooms. And there are those, I think Sasha Shulgin would be included, who said, you know, whether it's a synthetically produced or whether it's coming from something that's growing in nature, you know, it's still basically the same chemical. And if anything, the basic chemical may even be a little easier because it doesn't come with the things that upset your stomach and things like that that happen with a plant product. And others who believe that there's something either fundamentally different or better about having it come from the plant itself. And now you're saying that even when you produce something synthetically, that having a, a Nick Sands or an Owsley produce this is somehow going to produce a different product than would be some, you know, employee of a pharmaceutical company a decade from now who's just doing this stuff as part of his nine-to-five job. And so what about that first point between the natural plant-based substance and the synthetic? I would tend to agree with Sasha that uh, synthesized mescaline, hemisulfate, dihydrate, for example, the most beautiful long needles, these are 10-centimeter needles, the most beautiful physical substance imaginable. If uh, that mescaline uh, is the same as the mescaline of an all-night Native American church ceremony with prayer fans and incense around uh, the fire and the teepee and the dawn woman bringing water and all the prayers and chants for healing, are those two different? Well, the mescaline isn't. 
the circumstances in which it is offered are, are quite different. So I think that uh, myths, if you will, or uh, positive set and setting as a strong factor with the natural substances. Of course, there are many new startups. Uh, I see them in pitch decks every week of uh, firms that are attempting to <clears throat> make various elixirs uh, from psilocybin mushrooms, claiming that uh, the other uh, materials, psychoactive and non-psychoactive, in the mushroom itself uh, will influence the subjective effect and the healing properties. And other larger concerns say, no, no, uh, pure psilocybin speaks for itself. Mm -hmm. uh, so these uh, have yet to be resolved. I, I suspect the industry will will resolve these conundrums in the next few years, and we'll all have great fun watching it happen. Mm -hmm. Well, listen, I want to come back to this toward the end of the interview, because part of our connecting or reconnecting in recent months is around some of this new world of the, of the investment in the psychedelics uh, for profit. But let me just... Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong on this, but so when you, I, the sense I have from what you're saying is of a calling, of seeing that this is something called to do, and that a persistence of doing this even in the face of obstacles. And so I came across, and tell me if this is factually correct or not, but when I, one of the pieces I found said, well, you know, Leonard, your first arrest in this area was a petty arrest, what, in 1976 for possession of peyote. And then there's something else about another, I think, I don't know how minor, but for creating a, a small MDMA lab back in the mid-70s. And then some years later, in the late 80s, you get arrested in Mountain View, California for allegedly having an LSD lab, spent five years in prison until 92, come out, and a number of years where you're engaging with academia, getting a master's degree at the Kennedy School, writing in publications, but then the big bust on, I think it was election day 2000, which puts you in prison for 20 years. Now, if those details are correct, it suggests that you were, how could I say, incorrigible in the most upstanding sort of way, since fundamentally, I do believe that the work that you were allegedly engaged in performed an enormous community service for humankind uh, throughout this period. But I mean, it does suggest that these criminal justice penalties kept coming after you, but that you kept persisting with something that you love to do. Well, yes, Ethan, you've kind of got me on the spot there. But yes, so there were multiple arrests involving... Uh, psychedelic drugs, uh, perhaps every seven or eight years uh, one would occur. And these range from uh, a minor arrest where one was taken away for a day or two and released because the substance wasn't what they claimed it to be or might have been legal to arrest which required uh, six months in jail. And then the 1988 uh, Mountain View seizure, which resulted in five years, which is quite a significant LSD laboratory, uh, actually, from what I understand, the, the same size as the later Kansas arrest in 2000, which resulted in uh, not 20 years, but two life sentences, mandatory life sentences, without possibility of parole. In other words, a death sentence. The possibility of sorting it all out by appellate filings um, is something of an American dream and indeed does occur and supports the mercy and wisdom of our judicial system, but is so very rarely seen that men tend to lose hope. Although, at this late date, I harbor no ill will against the government. Mm -hmm. You know, Leonard, I mean, I was about to get to this point about your sentencing, and 
I was looking up some of the data on this, and among there's something like 2.2, 2.3 million people behind bars in America today, of whom about two thirds are in state prisons and federal jails. Of that one and a half million who are in state and federal prisons, roughly 200,000, the last that I saw count, are there serving a, a life sentence, either a mandated one or an effectively a life sentence. Half of them are black, but interestingly, about 8%, 17,000, are people who were convicted of nonviolent offenses. Now, one can make too much of the distinction between nonviolent and violent offenses. There are people who committed, you know, nonviolent offenses. You look at what Madoff did and the fact that he died behind bars, I have no ethical problem with. And on the other hand, there are violent offenses, you know, that don't seem to me to be in some separate category from some of the horrors of what people can do nonviolently to one another. But that said, you know, and having been involved in building an organization, a movement opposing these draconian sentences for drug offenses, I mean, the first thing I want to ask you is when I read about the judge who sentenced to you to the two life sentences with no possibility of parole, um, you can in your heart forgive that person. I imagine that he's no longer alive. And part of what I read was he was a highly right wing and maybe somewhat senile figure. But um, you really are able to forgive him because that was a discretionary choice he made, right? The law did not require him to sentence you in the way he did. Um, that would be Judge Richard Rogers, um, a, um, a very dignified Ford appointee, uh, Republican, uh, former mayor of Manhattan, Kansas, uh, ardent uh, uh, softball player, well-loved in the legal community in Topeka, a very distinguished jurist uh, who handed down uh, a number of uh, difficult but uh, well-respected uh, decisions. Uh, of course, I battled in the Judge Rogers' court. I wrote up over a thousand motions, uh, studied the law for years to uh, write uh, uh, such um, briefs, which very thoughtfully refined by the law offices of uh, Billy Rourke in the Topeka, uh, a rugby-playing uh, wild man, the last of the fighting liberal attorneys in Kansas, uh, the late Billy Rourke. Judge Rogers uh, occasionally entertained the jury during the longest trial in Kansas history, uh, one of his great quotes I recall is, this trial is like something out of the Arabian Nights, <laughs> <laughs> which got a great laugh from the jury. And He once called me a young man, which I really appreciated at 55, uh, but he was most courteous. Uh, I harbor no, uh, no ill will against Judge Rogers. Even though another judge might have sentenced you to a dramatically shorter amount of time? No, I, I think not. I think that uh, Judge Rogers' hands were tied simply by uh, the mandatory nature of, of sentencing. Uh, 10 grams or more of a substance containing a detectable amount of LSD, which might be one microgram, uh, is mandatory life at the quantities that we're discussing. Uh -huh. So uh, Judge uh, Rogers, as he mentioned at sentencing, uh, his hands were tied. I see. Okay, well, I stand corrected on that. I thought he had, there was a discretionary element of it. You know, in hearing you talk in the past a little bit about your prison experience, just by chance, I've been watching this TV series called Rectify, produced by Sundance now on AMC Plus, I think. And it's about, you know, a, a young man, white, who is convicted of having killed a, a young woman while under the influence of mushrooms, it so happens, uh, and can't accurately recollect what happened, and then gets out 
20 years later, having been traumatized by his experience and uncertain about what's going to happen in the future. And I have to say, as I was looking forward to having this interview with you, and I'm watching at night this show, I started thinking about some of these parallels and just the experience, you know, of being in this place, um, with, you know, this all-male environment where physical touch is either something that's either not good or that just doesn't happen with the sound of chains and the solitude, the fact of being in a maximum security setting uh, when that's not called for in your, a case like yours or many others to protect other inmates or what have you. It seems purely punitive. Um, but I'm curious, I mean, to get through that, and I imagine, you know, there must have been substantial periods of time where you thought that there was little to no chance of your ever becoming a free man during the rest of your life. Were there periods of profound hopelessness in all of this? And how did you sustain yourself through all of that? Yes, that, that period of hopelessness, Ethan, uh, you're entirely correct, uh, began on November 6, uh, 2000, and ended on July 27, 2020. And every day in between those two dates, 20 years, I thought I would most certainly die in prison, and everyone I knew thought the same. My attorneys, my friends, my family, my children, um, those of the public that paid attention to the case. Um, there is no way out from a mandatory life sentence. It simply does not occur, vanishingly rare. Only with the passage, uh, and a miracle in itself, the passage in uh, 2018 of the First Step Act by Congress during its last few days of session in December. The last few days, it was a bipartisan passage of the First Step Act, which, for the first time, allowed inmates to petition the court for release based on their good works or uh, their redemption or other factors, uh, medical, familial, uh, that would persuade the court that uh, they had served an adequate amount of time and were no longer a threat to the public. Naturally, I, I filed immediately on that. Um, very lengthy briefs, um, 500 pages, including exhibits, uh, and that matriculated through the system for over a year. Denied at the institutional level by the warden, denied at the regional level by BOP, denied at the national level by the BOP director, denied by the United States Attorney's Office. So what hope was there left? And then a great miracle happened, and there was a merciful and distinguished jurist who, with great courage and wisdom, and I suppose a, a small amount of faith, uh, read our petition and in the tempo of the times was so moved as to grant release. And since then, it's been like being born again. Yeah, but I noticed, Leonard, that when I read the decision, and it seems like he went out of his way to say, I'm doing this because of COVID. And Leonard's 75 or almost 75, and there is a risk here. But in terms of the other arguments, he didn't seem to be moved by the petition that of people who were fighting for your release or the good works you'd done in other areas or the insights you'd provided on the fentanyl crisis to people in law enforcement. Um, now, maybe he was just covering his butt, and maybe he was, in fact, moved by those other variables um, and just using the COVID as the kind of clear reason. But what do you think? Well, I can't speak of what was in the mind of uh, this particular jurist, except that I, um, I honor his wisdom and decision. <laughs> and whatever factors uh, influence that decision, and there, there could only be multiple factors, 
uh, I am deeply grateful for that moment of grace. Mm -hmm. There was somebody else in there with you, I think, um, a young man named Ross Ulbricht, right, who became famous or infamous, as one might have it, because he was the founder of Silk Road, which was a decade or so ago, the, supposedly the world's biggest dark net site for illicit activities, including obtaining illicit drugs around the world. And people were horrified when he was sentenced uh, for life. Now, there were some accusations he may have put contracts out on some people, but those were never substantiated. Uh, his mother actually came to one of the Drug Policy Alliance biennial events, and I met her, and she's had a campaign to try to get him out. But do you see him as somebody sort of similarly situated with yourself, a kind of younger generation version of yourself who is unjustly incarcerated for far, far more time than he ever should have been? And thank you, Ethan, for mentioning Ross. Uh, of course, I know his mother, Lynn, his father, Kurt, and uh, call them each night during trial in Manhattan uh, in the very darkest days. And then as he entered the system, suggested that perhaps he should be moved to a uh, institution that would be uh, less gang-riddled and threatening because Ross uh, was, of course, a target, uh, people assuming he had hidden Bitcoin. And he's, of course, he's a would be a gang victim. And I recall... Uh, how happy I was one day on the yard, walking in circles for 20 years on a dirt track, to see a young, then-bearded man walk in, and there he was. And we became great friends, and um, spoke daily, and walked quite a lot in my last year of incarceration. So I learned of Ross's heart and fears. Of course, the idea that he would harm anyone is just nonsense. Of course, even <laughs> Homeland Security uh, knew that was nonsense and didn't bring charges. A very fine-looking uh, young man, about 33, uh, gentle, meditative, a deep reader in economics, um, a writer, a sensitive young man that been in for eight years now surely has gotten the message and would never, never reoffend, and would be a tremendous asset uh, in the crypto world, uh, in the Bitcoin world, as a speaker, uh, as a teacher. Lynn, his mother, told me that when Ross heard of my release, he cried, hmm. not out of self-pity, but out of happiness, because we'd talk, we knew every, every detail of each other's cases and hopes and fears and every filing and everything about each other's families, and, and so we shared the fear and the dwindling hope and the simple faith of a mustard seed, if you will, in biblical terms, that it all might change. Mm -hmm. And when it did for me, I guess the reservoirs and, and Ross uh, broke loose. I promised him that when I spoke in podcast or, or spoke publicly, I would always mention him and draw public attention to his plight. It's time for him to go home. The most heartbreaking thing to me with Ross uh, on the rare occasions I had visits was that Ross always had visits, every visiting period, from a lovely French programmer, a woman, uh, that fell in love with Ross while he was away. They had special permission to, to see each other a lot. So I'd be in the visiting room, and she would come in. They would have a brief hello and goodbye, just a brief, brief hug, and spend hours talking and I would sit there and think to myself how beautiful, but also how very, very sad 
because these young people are still in the honeymoon phase. He'd only been in eight years. And so they still had faith that something might miraculously change by a motion, a habeas motion, a 2255, some elegant legal argument. And they don't know the dark, lonely years that stretch endlessly ahead. Ross could be there 20 years. He could be there 30 years. I've Mm -hmm. said goodbye to more than one inmate who has done 40 years. So my, my heart would break watching them. It is important that the public, the public that cares about evolution of computers, evolution of psychedelics, uh, evolution of simple humanity and, and freedom for the individual, recognize that long-term imprisonment of the nonviolent will be seen as uncivilized. Yeah. And eight or nine, ten years is enough for anyone for a nonviolent crime. No, Leonard, I mean, of course I agree with you. And I think it's, you know, it's part of the dark side of America's exceptionalism, that not only have we broken all records in the history of human civilization in terms of the percent of the population we're incarcerating, but also the way in which we throw away so many hundreds of thousands of people's lives, you know, for life. And they say incredible amounts of time. You know, I, I had heard you elsewhere talking about how you got through you know, these decades thinking this might be all it would ever be. And obviously you were writing your legal briefs and those were time consuming. And I read about how, you you know, you talked about becoming a big fan of 19th century British literature and reading vastly in that way. And you had relationships with people like Ross and others. I mean, there was that. But then I think one other thing you did was you wrote a book. And in reading about the book, it made me think of the book that Sasha Shulgin and his wife Anne wrote. They wrote a book called Pikal, P-I-H-K-A-L, which stood for Phenethylenes I Have Known and Loved. And the second half of the book is basically the recipes for all these psychedelic substances. But the first half is a sort of thinly disguised autobiographical account of their lives. And they felt a need to frame it as fiction because of the consequences of the law. And you wrote a book, which I think integrated some autobiographical um, with some fictional elements as well. Maybe you could just tell our listeners a bit about that. Thank you, Ethan. The book is called uh, The Rose of Paracelsus. Uh, Paracelsus was a 16th century alchemist in Basel, philosopher. And the title is adapted from a short story by the Argentine writer Jorge Luis Borges, I wrote this almost 700-page uh, tome uh, in pencil since there were only 10 rickety typewriters for 1,800 men and they were only available a few hours a day. But it was also very nourishing to write by hand. I spent 20 years um, reading um, mostly Victorian Edwardian literature. I found that a great uh, respite. Uh, when I looked up, there were you know, bloody gang battles and stabbings and killings and loudspeakers going off and tons of razor wire and guard towers and flashbang grenades and uh, tattooed faces with spider webs. And when I looked down into the text, I might be in 19th century England with carriages and horses and manners and uh, a gentler world. So it was easy to choose between the two. Uh, so the Rose of Paracelsus um, is written in a very mannered, uh, almost uh, Victorian, almost archaic uh, language that will be familiar to those that are uh, devoted readers of literature, but may be very difficult for those that expect a casual, breezy read. The wordcraft is uh, dense. Uh, there are puzzles. 
and foreshadowings, and a little humor, not all ponderous. But in writing it, sitting in a 60-square-foot steel cell forever, I found myself trying to remember what the world looked like, because after about five years, you forget images. You still see your family's face, your children's face, of course, but you haven't seen a flower or a dog or a cat uh, or a river or a forest or a tree in so many years that these are majestic recollections. But they are evaporating quickly, and so one tries to hold on to them. So in writing The Rose, I uh, tried to describe, for example, a great forest and... Uh, had some difficulty in doing that. Let's take a break here and go to an ad. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress... They gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Cowie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiment and Billy made raisins dance. That is so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me! <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to get you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on StoryButton, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts.
will be a match, I promise. Leonard, you know, we really just met a few months ago, and so I really know the Leonard post this experience in prison. But I'm curious when you reflect or when people who have known you for a very long time re-encounter you now, um, what are your, your and their perceptions about how you have changed or evolved as a human being, as a personality um, from your days before you went into that life sentence? Oh, I can't see myself, Ethan. I, I don't know. I. Uh... Probably, uh, I would put it as uh, the younger version was probably brash and uh, excited and uh, perhaps overconfident. Uh, the current version, <laughs> which is 20 years on, is an elderly man with uh, quite a few wrinkles, but uh, I still manage to twinkle and uh, have some laughs and a growing wonderful circle of friends and uh, my family is uh, reawakening. However joyous uh, the times were just before my arrest, as you can possibly imagine, the complexity and ecstasies of those days, uh, the simple joys now are transcendent. I've never had more fun in my life than, frankly, the last few months. I have to say I was amazed when we met in New York a few months ago, and then when you were in Boulder, we were both in Boulder for a, a meeting involving uh, also the psychedelics investment area, and then I think you were visiting your son, who is in medical school there. But I was just blown away at the way here you are. When you went away 20 years ago, technology was so radically different, and here you are reconnecting, connecting with whole new worlds of people, getting deeply engaged in the whole new you know breakout research with psychedelics and the investment side of that. You're introducing me to people I didn't know in this field, which was really quite special for me. And I was just struck by, you know, how well, I mean, maybe it's just a kind of quasi facade and you go back at home at night and collapse in some pile because of what you've been through. But it's quite extraordinary to see you. Get, I mean, here we are in crazy Manhattan a few months ago and you seem perfectly fine. I wonder if, if that many people could come out of your experience of 20 years of incarceration in a maximum security federal correctional institution, most of which spent hopelessly thinking you will never get out and come out with that level of vitality and youthfulness and high spirit and renewed curiosity about all around you. I mean, what you're saying here, it does seem like you're having the time of your life, that this is this, you know, monumental gift that has been presented to you to make the most of. Uh, you're absolutely right, Ethan. It was like, uh, frankly, it's uh, with a circle of friends and uh startups and investors and just the expanding social nature of the world, which is increasingly intensifying, especially the psychedelic revolution that's now occurring. It feels like coming home. I feel um, warmly received uh, wherever I go. It's like a party where everyone knows each other and it's all okay. And one's words are received well and one's thoughts are respected and, uh, and there's mutual respect uh, uh, ricocheting about it's a new world. You know, it wasn't so long ago, Ethan, that if you mention the word psychedelic, you risk your career, and certainly in academia. And now, it's a worldwide conversation of, we hope, uh, great promise for new medicines. And now, this may or may not occur. That's an entirely another conversation. But uh, things look very promising. 
So it's a type of reaffirmation and redemption and uh, helps forget all the suffering. Mm-hmm. Well, so let me ask you about this this new focus of your life, because, I mean, look, quite frankly, it, it, almost entirely because of you, it's possible that I may soon become an advisor for the first time in my life to a for-profit uh, an investment fund that's investing in a host of psychedelic enterprises. And so I think you and I probably share the kind of both worries and hopes of this I mean, not just the, the incredible work that's been sponsored by MAPS, you know, Rick Doblin's Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, and all some wonderful work on MDMA and public education and all of that, and the Hefter Society, the group of academics who have been involved in this research for a few decades or more now. But now with the whole growth of the commercialized for-profit side, which seems to hold the potential to provide the hundreds of millions of dollars in funding that could not be raised philanthropically and therefore is expediting this whole evolution. And yet, on the other hand, it involves commercialization. And as you said, uh, the risk that this will be taken in the wrong direction by companies that are seeking to maximize profit by you know, securing patents and excluding others or by manufacturers who don't really care about the special properties of what they're producing, but only the market potential. You know, what's going on now from your perspective? I mean, is this really a bubble that's going to burst and there'll just be a small number of players left? Is the reason why the psilocybin thing is uh, looming so large now in MDMA, but are we going to see more stuff with mescaline and LSD down the road? Um, do you think it really will replace, you know, the SSRIs or other, you know, s- substances, you know, pharmaceuticals that are taken daily by large numbers of people and make, you know, pharmaceutical companies vast profits, but with, you know, only modest efficacy? So I just want three different sorts of questions about the future, but take a swing at any one of those you care to. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> That's quite a breadth of questions. Uh, let me go back to say uh, how much I admire the work of Rick Doblin with MAPS. I uh, was privileged to be at Rick's uh, PhD thesis defense uh-huh. uh, at the Kennedy School uh, back in, oh goodness, 96, and uh, have come to admire the, the great work done by MAPS and by the Hefter Foundation. Uh, Dr. David Nichols, the foremost medicinal chemist in the world, uh, was an early founder. Uh, tremendous uh, early and visionary work, and both those organizations were formed in days where the specter of psychedelic drugs being used for healings was... Um, marginalized, if not ridiculed. So it took quite a bit of courage of uh, Rick and Dr. Nichols to act upon their vision, uh, often at the possibility of uh, the wrong direction in their careers. But now it's uh, all come round, and here we are with over 300 corporations and counting now formed, uh, some valued at a, a billion dollars, Compass, Pathways, Atai, Cybin, MindMed, all evolving out of uh, effectively the 2015 publication in the Journal of Psychopharmacology by Roland Griffiths at Hopkins, the study of psilocybin depression and uh, Rick's early faith that MDMA would be useful for PTSD. And here we are. Are we in a bubble? Of course, uh, I'm a a rather elderly and devoted hippie (laughs) who might proselytize. Uh, Even so, I think that we're in a time of tremendous enthusiasm, perhaps a little too much enthusiasm, uh, in the sense that um, you have a core of true believers that hope that these drugs will be useful for various uh, psychiatric illnesses. And indeed, they're powerful, and indeed they may, and the results uh, seem very promising. 
but I see an enthusiasm that perhaps is too broad. These compounds are not a panacea for all known maladies, but the corporatization in the corporatization field, we see um, every known psychedelic being uh, promoted, salvinorine, 5-methoxy-DMT, uh, masculine LSD, psilocybin, uh, psilocin, every analog, ketamine clinics are popping up uh, worldwide. Uh, it's all happening all at once. Billions of dollars, hundreds if not thousands of chemists and psychiatrists and neuroscientists all focusing in this field. A milestone was reached the other day by Francis Collins, uh, director of the National Institutes of Health, a truly eminent uh, and conservative leading figurehead who said psychedelics may well be useful. So, uh, looking carefully at a number of pitch decks each week that come across my desk and, and seeing the range of new founders and ideas, some are not strongly scientifically supported, others are true gems and may become major, major institutions. Uh, that all said, I do feel that we're in a classic bubble stock-wise, and that within the next uh, two or three years, there probably will be a shakeout, uh, depending upon the outcomes of the initial clinical trials. Uh, MAPS will report first on MDMA, uh, followed by MindMed, Cybin, Psilocybin. Uh, the outcomes of these trials, which are self-reported by the sponsoring corporation and must be by federal law, may define the industry. Uh, a trial that goes south will deflate valuations. A trial that is promising in phase two uh, will enhance valuations. Uh, but keep in mind, across pharmaceuticals in their entirety, uh, even antibiotics, only 14% of new drugs are approved by FDA. I suspect that psychedelics will receive no less scrutiny than any drug, and perhaps far more. So we'd better be right. And I think in some cases, uh, we are right. But folks, hold on to your hat. We're in the Wild West, and the next few years is going to be quite a ride. Yeah. Well, uh, Leonard, you know, back in your days of freedom in the 90s, and you got your master's degree at the Kennedy School, uh, you worked uh, with an academic, Mark Kleiman, who was a devoted friend of yours and a bit of a frenemy of mine. Um, but, you know, you wrote a, a brilliant paper about fentanyl at a time when few people knew what that was, and you correctly predicted that this could potentially become a great threat to public health. And you missed a bit by thinking that it might be Russia that would emerge as a major source rather than China. But I'm curious, bringing back to the psychedelics area, does China have a feature in this psychedelics area? I mean, you see them playing this role kind of illegally on the fentanyl thing. You see them playing a role as a pioneer on some of the e-cigarette stuff, for better and worse. What about psychedelics? How interesting you should ask that, uh, Ethan. Uh, China, of course, has the world's largest pharmaceutical industry, uh, <laughs> uh, 50,000 or so uh, firms, and is rather loosely regulated, hence the um, rather grave uh, influx of every known analog of fentanyl uh, into Europe. Some are quite potent, you know, 4,000 times the potency of morphine. Uh, and China, of course, is the primary source country, although... Uh, Mexico, certain Mexican labs have been devastating in terms of the lethality of their production. It's, it's difficult to answer your question on that, uh, Ethan. Has China awakened to psychedelics? No, it has not. Um, I keep a, uh, a spreadsheet of um, every known startup I can find, over 300 now, 
and um, nothing coming out of China. A few uh, Japanese pharmaceutical firms are looking somewhat at um, uh, isomers of, of ketamine, but China uh, remains the sleeping giant. Uh, I feel that it would be uh, wise of activists in this field, uh, especially the corporate figures, to reach out to Chinese uh, venture capital firms and attempt to engage them and excite them uh, into this realm. I think that additional billions will flow into research uh, if we manage to do that. China being very conservative, having no broad underground as we do in the States and Europe. There was no brotherhood of eternal love in the 60s, uh, putting out tens of millions of doses. So they have no mature investors who had dazzling insights around campfires in their youth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's no Chinese versions of our San Francisco uh, right. young billionaires. But uh, those of us that have Chinese connections, I'm looking at the direction personally, uh, might do well to uh, try for a clinical trial in Shandong province or, or Beijing or, or Hong Kong and gently awaken the Chinese to this as part of the world community. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see. I think China, the Chinese government played a, a sort of leading role a few years ago in a very bad way in trying to um, ban the use of ketamine more broadly. Uh, you know, much of the world ketamine is used for pain relief where opioids are not available. But Leonard, let me finish with one last question. So as all of these new psychedelic compounds are being created by changing a molecule here and there, um, and sometimes non-psychedelic compounds as well, is there anything out there on the horizon that you think shows really exceptional interest that would take matters beyond where we have with MDMA, LSD, the basics that are out there? Are there new compounds that you're aware of that could land up being approved or show great potential in one way or another? Well, keep in mind, Ethan, with the corporatization, which has stimulated uh, enormous advances and in intensity of new medicinal chemists uh, working feverishly at their benches with uh, novel methods of invention and manufacture, uh, with this uh, huge um, illicit activity going on now, we are seeing historically for the first time the advent of tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of molecular variants. These generally in previous years, say 20 years ago, would be published in the scientific journals for everyone to see. Mm-hmm. But with the corporatization, such things are proprietary I'm told every week, even under non-disclosure agreement, that, oh, I'm sorry, we can't share our patent application. So the work is becoming, oddly, <laughs> clandestine yet again. Uh, that all said, since I can't point to any specific compound, I can say with some confidence that we will see a variety of new creatures appear. Now, most of these new creatures will be not very interesting, a psychedelic wash, or a buzz, if you will, uh, uh, somewhat change of consciousness. Uh, some will be, hopefully, most precious. Mm-hmm. They will uh, resolve post-traumatic disorders. They may resolve postpartum depression, may resolve certain types of anxiety. They may uh, replace parts of pharmacopoeia. Or they may replace certain types of SSRIs, although that's uh, quite a reach to say that. But the fear I have is that within this great generation of uh, new creatures, some may be rather difficult little beast and prove to be quite addictive or quite lethal. Um, we've already seen an example of this um, 
coming out of the Free University of Berlin uh, back about 2006. A postdoc there was uh, tinkering with one of Sasha's variations on his remarkable drug 2CB, which is a worldwide recreational compound now. And uh, this fellow, a, a decent researcher, um, exploring, did a series of modifications. And he came up with something called, for lack of a better chemical <laughs> name, N-bomb. And N-bomb turned out to be a psychedelic, very potent at about, oh, 80 micrograms, as potent as LSD. And so this was immediately seized upon by hasty underground people and distributed as LSD. The problem was, and it was quite lethal, there were a number of deaths. So my fear is that within this great search and great discovery of thousands and thousands of quite remarkable compounds, uh, we'll see it go both ways. We may see a new drug that will sweep the world and has a positive benefit upon humanity, ranging from medical use to personal seeking, if you will. And it may replace, in large part, the legacy compounds, LSD, DMT, mescaline, psilocybin. But I think uh, along with that, we may also see some, uh, some most unfortunate things occur. Yet it's our responsibility in the psychedelic community to suppress one and promote the other. Mm -hmm. I mean, so Leonard, when you were allegedly involved in production and certainly involved in this world and this brotherhood, what was your thinking about, about the broader consequences? I mean, did you basically see the, the use of LSD by millions or tens of millions of people as a generally positive thing, notwithstanding the risks? Um, and then when you, you know, fast forward to today, where a lot of this is moving forward in this kind of medical, you know, research environment, even as larger and larger numbers of people are doing it outside that setting, what is your thinking and hopes vis-a-vis -vis the whole endgame of this? Well, that's a difficult question, Ethan. I uh, think back to our thinking as very young people in the 60s when we were 21, 22, 23, uh, the young people of the era uh, had great hope that the insights provided uh, by these compounds would alter society in benevolent ways uh, to become less uh, militaristic, less unaware of the environment, more aware of each other, to be delighted by the gifts of the mind. And then over the years, I saw people being lost in different things, lost in methamphetamine and heroin addiction and cocaine addiction, all those malaises that went on forever. And I saw those horrors quite close up and deaths from them. And so I uh, often remark when, when so asked, uh, is it best that everybody take LSD? Uh, I would say no. I think uh, LSD or any psychedelic is only for a certain section of the population, maybe a minority of the population. It's for some people, but not everyone. In terms of the many analogs proliferating and the tendency of uh, young people to try every known drug in the book, <laughs> available freely online these days, I would say that we should remember that after all our explorations, we have to come home. We have to come home to the natural mind, the place where we began as young people before we had exposure to these substances or to extreme experiences. The simple, pure place that is our ultimate gift, that which we began from, and with luck and uh, vision, will return to. So I think that with, after all of the explorations and all the corporatizations, 
and all the excitement uh, that we simply remember to to come home to the natural mind. Mm-hmm. Well, Leonard, um, let's just hope that the spirit that animated you and others allegedly involved in the Brotherhood of Underground Chemists uh, continues to infuse the field of the research in this area into the future. I want to thank you ever so much for being my guest today. It's been a pleasure to connect with you in recent months, and I look forward to our future uh, intersections with ever greater frequency in the future. So thank you very, very, very much. Thank you so much, Ethan. Wonderful to see you again. I look forward to many future conversations. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Edelman. It's produced by Katja Kumkova and Ben Kiebrick. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Giesis, and Darren Aronofsky for Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick for iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Adelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian, and a special thanks to Aviviet Bar-Yosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beatty. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, or ideas, please leave us a message at 833-779-2460. That's 1-833-PSYCHO-0. You can also email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. And if you couldn't keep track of all this, find the information in the show notes. So next week, uh, we're going to do something different. I'll have my old friend and drug expert, Dr. Julie Holland, join me in answering questions from you, the audience. I don't have to pee in a cup to talk to you, do I, Ethan? Oh, well, you know, people used to say if you wanted a job at Drug Policy Alliance, you needed to fail a drug test, but that was never true. (laughs) Subscribe to Psychoactive Now so you don't miss it. From BBC Radio 4. Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionized over 20 million bedtimes, with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cozy sleep meditations, every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Welcome to season nine of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.